Welcome to the IASA Podcast Network. I am Rich Volz, the Associate Director of the Illinois Association of School Administrators. Today, our guests are Steve Murphy, Carbondale High School District Superintendent, Dee Scott, Superintendent of Casey Westfield School District, and John Bartell, Superintendent of Bloomingdale School District. The topic of this podcast is panel discussion on current issues as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Good afternoon, panel members. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your school districts. So my name's Steve Murphy. Uh, I've been in education since 2002. I've been with Carbondale High School District 165 for that whole time period. I started as a teacher and worked my way up as assistant principal, principal, and superintendent. I've been a superintendent since 2011, and I'm on the ISA executive board for the Shawnee region. Uh, Carbondale Community High School is a high school district of about a thousand students. It's very diverse. We're in a university community. We're about 130 square miles. So we have some rural areas. We have some poverty. We're about 55% white, 30% African-American, 10% Hispanic, and 5 to 10% uh, Asian or, or other. Uh, so diverse district with a, a diverse group of students. Hello, this is Dee Scott, Casey Westfield Superintendent. This is my final year in education, my 11th year as a superintendent. I am retiring on June 30th. My district is a unit district of about 900 students and covers 196 square miles in portions of five counties. We are very rural and not very diverse. Um, majority of students are white. We started a one-to-one -one initiative in our district in 2012 and routinely provide one-to-one -one learning experiences for students in grades 3 through 12 with Chromebooks. Good afternoon. My name is uh, John Bartelt. I've been superintendent in Bloomingdale for the past eight years, but I'm in my 20th year as a superintendent. Bloomingdale is a, a school district with 1,400 students, pre-K to 8, and we serve a population that is uh, uh, just west of uh, Chicago, uh, we're a northwest or northeast uh, community in DuPage County, and we are suburban, therefore. And uh, we have, uh, uh, we're generally, in terms of our demographic population, uh, Caucasian, with uh, our first minority population being Asian, uh, then Hispanic. Uh, we are, uh, we're, we're, we're doing well. Uh, I'm looking forward to being in Dee's place someday, uh, but I will say that since I started uh, being a leader when I was eight years old, uh, I figured I got a little ways to go. So we are now finished with our first full week of remote learning. I'd like to ask each of you, what has been your biggest surprise as we've gone into this remote learning? So for me, one of my most respected teachers, and we are not one-to-one, -one, uh, right now. And so when this hit, obviously the first thought was how, what, if we can get devices to students and connectivity to students. And I knew in my district that I had certain pockets in rural areas that struggled with connectivity and certain poor, poor areas of town that we might have some issues. But early on, one of my most respected teachers, uh, told me that 
she did not live in an area where she had a stable internet connection. And she told me about the struggles that she was having with her own kids being off school and helping them. And also the stress of leaving the house with them and going to an area where she could have connectivity to connect with her students. As soon as she told me that, I knew at the time we were trying to get survey data from students on these pockets that I thought we could address, but I knew immediately when she told me of her struggle that we were going to paper and we needed to get those packets ready and we didn't need to, you know, really spend any more time with diagnostics on where we needed to get internet right away. And I've heard more stories of that from some of our faculty. So again, that's kind of was the biggest surprise on my end. I knew we had some gaps as far as the student population, but not really realizing that we need to do a, address some issues with our faculty and staff as far as connectivity. And I think in Casey Westfield, our biggest surprise probably for everyone, all staff, administrators, is how much work this is all day, every day, trying to keep up with the changes in food service needs, the changes in remote learning needs, communicating is the pace and constancy of communication is intense with all stakeholders. And I think going in, you a lot of people probably thought, gosh, no students at school, no um, teachers at school. This will be a little bit mellow, but it's quite the contrary. Well, for us, the, uh, the biggest surprise in Bloomingdale has been the uh, uh, capacity building and creativity of the, uh, the adults in the district. Um, we are, I, I was certainly surprised to see with a district that did not have a, an approved e-learning plan, uh, what my staff was able to do on behalf of the continuity of, of learning of our students in such a short period of time. It was uh, amazing and inspiring. It was uh, a testament to a lot of the work that had been done uh, with our one-to-one -one devices. Um, we are one-to-one -one all the way through kindergarten. And uh, so it was, uh, it was something that we could plan for because we knew that it was coming, but we didn't have anything formally organized. And uh, what they've been able to do in such a short period of time uh, while remaining connected to their to the students of, the, of each of our schools uh, has been nothing short of amazing. My second question for all of you is, what's the biggest positive thing you can refer to after we've entered this emergency? I'll, I'll just piggyback on what John said, how much our teachers just stepped up right out of the gate and not being one-to-one, -one, getting creative on connecting with students. Uh, just before we came up with a formalized plan or said teachers had to do these office hours or this PD or this connection plan, communication plan with students, they just jumped right in and stepped up. And again, the creativity level and the passion that our teachers have had not just the teachers, but all the faculty and staff, the food service staff have jumped in uh, just with incredible efforts. We've got one teacher who's using a 3D printer 
that we use uh, to print masks and PPE for the local uh, hospital. So just a wide variety. I mean, just couldn't be more proud of our faculty and staff and how they've jumped in in a variety of areas to serve the community. The community, parents, staff, students have come together like never before here to make this transition the best it can be for kids. I, If you had described this situation to me and asked how it would go, I would never have thought it would go this well. It has literally brought out the best in everyone. People from all walks have expressed so much support, encouragement, and gratitude for each other and the community as a whole. And they've put that into action by stepping up and helping out. And, and I mean that from my staff to the local ministers to the lady down the street. Uh, we've had more offers for, for volunteer help with some of the different works that we're doing as a school district. They've just they've come out of the woodwork and it's been it's been great to just have everybody share so much appreciation um, as a community for each other. I think for us it was the the way that families came together. Uh, I think that we spend a lot of time focusing on ourselves and our careers and the stay at home order really put everybody in a place where they all had to band together as families and they've been able to see and be around uh, their children and see what they've been able to do uh, utilizing devices and, and engaging in activities that are, uh, deemed safe outside and are um, sharing their uh, experiences utilizing uh, social media posts like on Twitter. And, and what that what I'm seeing is is people making the best of it in a, in a difficult situation. And I think it's a theme that you're hearing from all three of us uh, that um, when, when, the, when, when we're at a disadvantage and, and are not able to do what we do best in the, in the most traditional sense, um, everybody, including our families, have stepped up and, and, and made the difference. My third question is, how do you receive information to deal with this emergency as a school superintendent? Well, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to start off by commending the IASA and the SWAT team for just their communication, the toolkits they've been sending out after their meetings, um, and just the outreach of the SWAT team members to their various uh, regions. We have a weekly call. I'm assuming other regions do something similar of the SWAT team with updates. So that's been great to connect with um, other superintendents and not just IASA, but other organizations, but kudos to the IASA for that. Also, uh, we do at least a weekly, sometimes bi-weekly conference call with the city, uh, the, the hospital, the other public bodies in our district. Uh, and that's been led by the city, but uh, that's been good just to touch base on what the hospital is doing and what the other uh, organizations in, in town are doing and seeing with it. So, and I think some superintendents in some areas, you might need to be the leader in, in getting something like that going. So if you don't have that in your area, it might be worth a call to the city or the hospital uh, to get something like that going, because it's been valuable for us just to touch base, even for a half hour 
once a week on where everybody is. Oh, and I'd like to plug too. I know we're all getting bombarded with uh, requests to be on webinars and things like that, but um, it has been nice at least picking one a week from uh, from a school attorney, whether that's yours or another one that you're seeing just to get updates legally. It can, it can be pretty valuable even for a half hour just to sit and listen to updates uh, from webinars from attorneys and of course from Rich Volts as well. I started to answer this question and I said, how don't I receive information? I, the information, the communications, it's all there. Anything that you need is being provided to us through IASA, the state board. Our local regional office has been great. Um, IASBO, my special education cooperative has done a lot of things to help give guidance. Our local health department, um, IASB, and the list goes on and on. There's, there is no shortage of guidance. There's no reason to not really know or understand what's expected or, or to get answers to your questions because the guidance that has been provided is, elect, is, is excellent and almost 100% electronic for me, um, including webinars. There are lots of phone calls also, but the majority of what I do is just accessing information online. Well, I was uh, I was fortunate enough to be asked to be part of the the SWAT team for IASA, and so I I will say that I get a lot of my information just from uh, shutting my shutting my mouth and opening my ears and listening to my peers uh, within that particular network. But I think that one of the things that I found most valuable was when we were put uh, to task to put things together in, in quick fashion. Um, I went to my professional learning network online uh, through Twitter and I tapped everybody I knew. Um, and, you know, normally I'm, I, I like to share information and I don't have any expectation for any to be shared back with me in return. But this was one of those situations that I said, I really need everything you have. And I really needed to be able to be supportive to not only school leaders, but also parents, also other people who uh, have no access to the kinds of resources that we have. And uh, through that, I've learned how to, to conduct Zoom meetings. I've learned how to not conduct Zoom meetings. Um, I've, learned, uh, I've learned a lot through um, the process and staying connected to the, the people in my network who have uh, really stepped up and uh, you know, the next thing I did uh, following a week after we got started was to send uh, uh, wellness checks uh, to all the people in my network just to find out how they're doing because uh, it's extraordinary uh, what uh, a crisis can do to um, your hair color as well as your disposition. And I think it's important that we stay connected so that we are there for our peers. And so I, I do it in a variety, I, I stay connected in a variety of ways, but I'm always staying connected um, to my fellow superintendents. If you could recommend one thing to fellow superintendents at this time, what would that be? You know, Rich, um, Mike Tyson once said, everyone's got a plan until they get hit. And just to be frank, I, it seems like I'm seeing a lot of superintendents across the state, uh, 
who are doing their remote learning plan and they're kind of doing it assuming they're not going to get hit. You know, there's there's some counties that right now that only have one or two cases. And I think you have to think about in the back of your mind or maybe in the front of your mind, uh, what's my plan going to look like if 5% of my teachers get sick? Um, what's my plan going to look like once even one of my food service workers may get sick? Uh, so I would encourage maybe some backups. I know some districts are doing different rotations for the food service workers. I know some districts are, you know, making sure teachers have backups, but just be mindful that our capacity to carry out our plans in May, if we get to that, which I, we probably will, may be different than the capacity right now in early April. And just to allow for that, and and be ready for that i'd say my um recommendation would be not to be an island in these tough times and i think john just talked about that reaching out to people in your network communicating with those closest to you on your administrative team your board members on a regular basis and that will help you to be supported it will help to ensure collaboration in the decisions that you're making. It will help you hold up personally. So just reach out to others for them and for yourself. Uh, the advice I would give my colleagues is the advice I've been giving them, and that is uh, take time out for yourself. Uh, if you don't, uh, we're all burning the candle at both ends. We're all being criticized uh, by people in our community for the way we're responding, even if we're completely compliant with the remote learning guidelines from the State Board of Education. It will not matter. Um, there are people that are would like to see things return to normal faster, and that's outside of all of our controls. And as the ones who have to take the ultimate responsibility for our school districts and, and our students' uh, continuous learning during this time, it is critically important that we step away from time to time, do some things that make ourselves happy, find and engage in projects or activities, whether that's exercise, whether that's meditation, uh, to try to uh, bring ourselves back uh, and make ourselves as stable as we can be, because there is nothing stable about what we're dealing with right now. And if anyone's telling you that, uh, uh, everything's fine and that there's there's nothing wrong, then they're, they're not telling you the truth. Uh, ultimately, you have to care for yourself uh, in order for to, to be best able to care for others, whether that's in your communities that you serve or the colleagues that you're networking with. What kind of information would you need, either from the governor, ISBE, the federal government, before you would be comfortable reopening the physical school buildings in your districts? So I'm going to steal my answer from Gary Tipsard, friend of mine at Leroy School District. Uh, I think what we need to open up schools is we need one of those bodies to tell us what the protocol is for when we open up, what what to do for the first kid that comes in or first faculty member that comes in and then and test positive so wh what is that and when is that 
So, you know, if, if there's a magic shot that's been developed over the summer uh, and the school nurse has a case of those shots and we just give the kid that shot when they walk in the door or, you know, do we call the local health department? Whatever it is, we need to know as school districts what that protocol is. And if you start to think about that, you start to wonder at what point we really can open up our doors and we'll see where this goes. But if we don't have that information, it's just going to be everyone for themselves and you'll have districts closing down just randomly all across the state. So that that's what I feel like we need before we can open up schools statewide. And at this point, I've resolved myself to the idea that we probably are not opening back up this school year. I would be delighted to be given that opportunity if the governor and the state board issue a statement allowing it and the protocols that Steve is describing. We are a very rural district in the southern third of Illinois with no confirmed confirmed cases of COVID-19 at this time. Obviously, if and when that changes in my community, that totally changes my way of thinking. Well, in DuPage County, we've had uh, several cases of coronavirus uh, diagnosed and, uh, and several deaths, um, not necessarily in the Bloomingdale community. Uh, but um, the thing I think that is most important, Steve kind of nailed it on the head, is we need a set of protocols uh, for reentry. Uh, we need to know what does the what does the building have to be prepared to handle. Um, I think we also need to uh, uh, have uh, FEMA or some sort of uh, 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 emergency group uh, look at our emergency plans and deem them whether or not they're appropriate under pandemic uh, situations. Because when I looked at my emergency plan, one of the first things it talked about was gathering your leadership team group together to look at alternatives and well, we can't exactly gather. Uh, so I think that uh, some of this is, is really dependent on the situation. And I don't know if uh, uh, whatever the, whatever the protocols are decided upon for reentry and uh, if a case should occur, because it's, if this is viral and much like our annual influenza, are we going to be able to have to look at this the same way as we look at influenza down the line as science advances on this topic? Or are we going to be put in a position where, uh, as Dee described, uh, we're going to be seeing things close here and there uh, based upon uh, cases popping up in, in individual buildings uh, within districts and within communities? What feedback are you getting from teachers concerning this conversion to remote learning? Well, I covered this a little bit in my first answer. Again, we just some of our teachers are struggling on their end with the connectivity um, and just some of the issues uh, that teachers are dealing with, not just as a teacher in their home, but as a parent uh, in their home. Uh, so I think that's probably the biggest feedback I've gotten. The, probably the biggest issue we've had is teachers getting down because maybe they've reached out uh, and maybe an English teacher has 120, 125 students on our caseload and, and only 10% of the students have 
reply back, at least early on. Uh, so we, we basically just had to encourage teachers to keep trying, try some different things and, and see what works for you. So we're just kind of staying at it because again, the issues that you're having at home, those students are also having at home too. They may be wondering about where their next meal is and might not be checking their email consistently. Uh, so that's probably been the biggest, the biggest feedback is a little bit of frustration with the connectivity early on, the connection, but we're working on it. We jumped right in on March 17th with what's now being called remote learning, but it was a kind of an emergency e-learning plan as per the state superintendent's recommendation the week before that we developed that. And with our one-to-one initiative already in place, we felt we were in a good position to move forward. However, I think the biggest challenge that our teachers have faced, and it's it's an ongoing issue that we're trying to work through, is dealing with pacing of instruction and assignments. We have many teachers who, you know, rigor is a big thing in our school district, and they want to keep that going at full bore, and that's not really workable in this situation. It puts a lot of strain on parents and students, and they're simply not able to progress at the same rate they were in the classroom. And that sounds just like common sense, but it's been very difficult for many of my teachers to pull back and scale back what they're doing or just completely change what they're doing so that it's more adaptable to the home learning environment. I've also had a lot of teachers express that they are shocked when they look at the clock during the day at how much time has flown by um, as compared to their regular school day. You know, they're interacting with students, they're working to answer questions, they're guiding lessons, and they definitely aren't twiddling their thumbs. I think that the the first problem that we ran into was uh, a lack of uh, a formal structure. we've always been able to provide a formal structure for the way instruction is to be delivered. And so converting to a at-home learning plan is what we're calling it. Uh, it makes it more difficult for teachers to know their expectations and what, uh, what is involved in the, in the process of uh, delivering instruction adequately uh, or even excellently to students when you can't utilize some of your your natural talents uh, and you're dependent upon uh, technology uh, to get uh, to, to bring out some of those talents uh, sometimes successfully sometimes not and I think that the the one frustration that I've had and heard from teachers that I've not been able to answer is uh, working with uh, those students that have special learning needs uh, has been uh, incredibly frustrating because uh, of all the different things that we've had mandate waivers on and 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 really good guidance upon uh, the one thing that we have not had any relief on uh, as a state or country has been the um, the laws that are, the federal laws that mandate how students with disabilities that have to learn and in a situation where you're trying to do things remotely, whether that's providing uh, an initial uh, case study evaluation 
or whether that's uh, trying to meet the needs of, a, of an IEP electronically, uh, it's very difficult to try to just say, um, quote unquote, just wing it to your teachers to get them uh, um, some sort of support while they're trying to accomplish uh, this task uh, on behalf of students and their families. What feedback are you receiving from parents? Well, kind of, this goes along with the last question, and uh, both John and Dee mentioned with the teachers, the pacing uh, and the strain that can come on the home side. I mean, I just got an email from a parent uh, that is a graduate student at uh, Southern Illinois University, and in the next month will not have her position anymore, probably won't be in Carbondale anymore, and just wanting to know what she should do, just anxiety about whether one of her sons is going to graduate. Uh, and so we're, we're seeing that. Uh, I think it's a great point about the pacing and what parents are going through on the other end in their home. We're very blessed in education. We're still working. Uh, and on the other end, we've got some other parents that have a lot of anxiety about their job and and we can't be adding on extra anxiety about uh, homework and grades and things like that. So that's been the majority of the feedback. We've had positive feedback about how our teachers are interacting, uh, but you're just hearing this as more and more companies lay people off and just a lot of anxiety about the situation in general in the home right now. Mm-hmm. Going back to the, the same thing Steve is talking about, the pacing of instruction and assignments and the ability to keep students engaged while learning at home has been a big challenge for some of our parents. And even while I say that, I think it's important to note that our parents have been overwhelmingly supportive and appreciative of the work being done to teach and to feed our children. I think public relations in our school district are actually at an all-time high. I believe the parents value teachers more each day. Um, the stress is there for our parents, and we need to listen to that and, and work as educators to help with that in our response with the assignments and the pacing of those assignments. In my case, I'm, I'm getting a variety of different responses. I give, uh, I have some people who are, um, satisfied, uh, and understanding and are, are coping with the demands of trying to balance, uh, their own careers. If they are, if they're engaged in, uh, essential work, um, as well as, uh, those who are, are out of work and are, uh, full-time supporting their students in their in their learning journeys. And then I, I also have some that don't understand that why aren't we doing 300 minutes of instruction? Why aren't we uh, doing a more shifting from period to period? Uh, and why, why aren't you grading things uh, at, at, a, at a timely clip? And, and this is, you know, some of this work is too easy. I, I, I get a little bit of all of that in uh in the feedback and and all i can do is reply that you know in these uncertain times there's not much that you know there wasn't enough time for us to do the kind of uh deeper uh dive into planning that would allow us to a lot to to 
provide you everything that you're looking for. And the fact is, is that we can't because remote learning was never meant to be uh, a permanent solution for face-to-face -face interaction and and the type of um, instructional delivery that we can do when we are with children in, in physical proximity inside a, a place that has all of our resources uh, that allows us to do the things that we do best, uh, that we were trained to do, the things that we are, are skilled to do. And in that communication, it just has to be a, a level of, of empathy and a level of understanding and accepting the responsibility for those who don't want to understand or are just undergoing an incredible amount of stress as a, role, as a result of the situation around us. What protocols have you put in place for the emotional well-being of staff and students? So just two areas. I think, number one, you have to be proactive in your communication uh, and really ensure that every student gets touched, gets communicated with. Uh, we've got a shared Excel spreadsheet where teachers with every student's name on it, and we've got just a system where uh, every if a student's a student's line will go red if multiple people have tried to contact and and that student hasn't been reached. So I think just having a plan in place, whatever your district looks like, where you can confirm that you've had contact with each student consistently and be proactive. And then, and I think John mentioned this, the the tone of your communication. You know, it can't just be informational from the superintendent. You know, here's the remote learning plan and here's the schedule for food service. You know, you really want to have the, you want to have the message that we care about people, we miss you, uh, be well, and show that empathy for students in the tone of your communications. Our nurses, counselors, social worker, and principals have been contacting directly contacting staff and students to check on their well-being and provide support as needed. And especially those students who were identified with needs previous to school closing, those are more regular daily communications to ensure that their mental health is, is addressed. Um, many of our students have regular sessions with a social worker or a counselor, and so we, we are making sure that we follow up on those times. As Steve indicated, I, I'm using uh, daily communication. Um, for example, one of the things that I made sure that everybody understood from a community and staff point of view is that last week was our calendar spring break. And I indicated to uh, parents that it's the expect, even though there were some that would like me to continue remote learning, uh, my my thought was I need to give the staff the opportunity to recharge during this time to, to tend to their own families and their own needs. And I made sure the staff understood that, you know, there was not an expectation for them uh, during the spring break week to be reaching out. We are going to honor the, the calendar uh, as closely as we can, and we're going to operate within that parameter uh, so that they can have that time to, to recharge when they need to. Um, I've, I've also taken the opportunity to reach out to individuals if I if I'm seeing in their uh, in their emails or in their posts that they are 
needing to have a discussion or needing to have a talk uh, that to do that um, and to, to try to support them in what whatever their needs may be or connect them with somebody who can help them more specifically with a specific need, if that's the case. Uh, with our students, uh, one of the things that we're implementing, um, thanks to the uh, Illinois Digital Educators Alliance, uh, is a uh, caller ID masking system uh, so that our teachers don't have to give up their personal cell phone numbers in their efforts to try to contact families and students uh, to, to make sure that they're not giving up that, that level of privacy that they'd like to have. Uh, in order to do what's right in terms of connecting and communicating and listening uh, to their to the students that they serve, and so we're we're anxious to see how that's that's going. Right now, there's been a lot of uh, Google Meets uh, face to face. There's been Flipgrid. Um, my schools do uh, some of them have been doing audio or, or video daily announcements that they send home to family email accounts so they can watch them at home. And so it's it's been those types of connections and those types of communications keep people upbeat and make them feel still connected to the school district. As we look to the future and someday a routine to some type of normalcy, how do you think this will affect publication as time goes on? How it'll affect uh, public education, um, I think. On a national level, I, I think it's really shown the light on equity. And again, the, depending on what zip code or where you live, uh, your access, online access, again, they'll probably, we'll probably never get rid of inequity uh, in this country or in education, but it really shouldn't be based on the infrastructure. Uh, I mean, I, I really think we're going to start looking at beefing up the infrastructure nationally so that everyone could be connected. But I think it's a time for reflection on the state and local level in education about what we value and maybe what we don't value. I mean, I think there are some districts stepping back and thinking about, do we really need to have finals if we didn't need to have them this semester? Uh, what do, do we need grades? I know there are some districts moving to more standard-based evaluation uh, do we need to have grades? I know there's a lot of stress right now in education about, boy, these kids aren't going to do the work if we don't have to, if we can't hold a grade over their head. And I think in some sense, we're seeing that a lot, but I, I know we have some teachers that are rolling right along, connecting with students, even though maybe they're only on pass incomplete. So I think we may step back and look at some of those, uh, some of those issues about what we value and what we don't value. And I think, and Dee mentioned this earlier, there's one thing that there's there's no doubt that people value in this, and that's the value of the teacher. I mean, we're never going to get to a spot where we can just hand out Chromebooks and not have that personal connection with a teacher in the school or with an administrator, a counselor, even the food service personnel. I, th I think we're really seeing the value of what public education is and what schools provide and what teachers provide. And I, I'm hoping maybe that there's an increased respect for the profession coming out of this. This pandemic and the resulting school closures have forced everyone to adapt to remote learning. While it hasn't been seamless, it has opened everyone's eyes to what is possible 
and what hurdles need to be overcome. Like Steve is, is mentioning, infrastructure is a problem. Even in our school district, I mean, we're, we're very rural. There are people who live in places who simply cannot get cell service. So it's not a matter of providing them a hotspot because cell service does not reach them. So I'm hoping that our state and our federal government will focus more on what we need to do to improve the infrastructure throughout the state. It, it's not something that a school district can get a grant for and solve. It's something that our cellular providers, where I'm at, it's cellular providers. It's not running a cable somewhere. They need to add more towers or do something so that we don't have a large number of gaps where people simply cannot access the internet. So I'm hoping that the state will move forward to utilize and expand our infrastructure so that remote learning when it is necessary, and it may not be necessary <clears throat> for the masses again like it is now, but it does make sense at times for different student populations and programs. And I would like to see it be something that all students could access. What I see is an incredible time of, of innovative practices and, and, and things that are going to happen that are, are going to be shared among public schools across the country that will help shape some practices or change the way we've done things. We are an organization as a public school system uh, that is not easy, easily changed. Um, just take a look at our school calendars and take a look at uh, our, our practices uh, uh, in, in the way we deliver instruction in some locations, we're resistant to change. And I think once change is forced upon us uh, due to extreme circumstances, that's when you get to see innovative practices kind of rise to the top. That's when you get to see alternative ways to reach out and support students and families. And I think one of the things that's going to happen that's a real positive piece for public education is looking at where public education's place is in our communities and, and where that that where do we stand in that echelon of service delivery within a community and how schools have been adapting to become food distribution centers, have been adapting to become potential places for uh, medical uh, personnel to take uh, uh, sick individuals when the hospitals are packed full. Um, the, the outreach of, of people to people uh, to make sure that not just that their educational needs of their children are met, but that their social and emotional needs under extremely stressful times are also being met and that critical services are being delivered uh, rapidly to these individuals. I think we'll, we'll see some things that come from this that will hopefully uh, allow us to change and adapt our practices so that we can reach all students, whether that's through Stephen D's comments on, on, on infrastructure development um, or just through instructional uh, uh, pedagogy. I think that you, you've got some opportunities that we're going to see rise to the top that are going to be uh, 
wonderful practices for everybody to consider implementing within their own school district and communities. Well, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Steve D. and John for participating in our ISA podcast today. And best of luck as we continue through and do the best we can for our communities, our students, and our staff. Thank you again.